guest speaker this afternoon. Mr Pridmore has spoken all over the world. Last year, Mr Pridmore spoke in over 20 countries. In 2008, he spoke at World Youth Day to half a million people. Next Wednesday, he begins a speaking tour in New Zealand <coughs> for two months. He then plans to travel to Australia for a two, further two months, finishing his travels in Spain before returning to Dublin just after Christmas. His talk is entitled Power of Jesus. Mr John Pridmore. Son and Holy Spirit, Amen. So Lord Jesus, we just ask you to help us to see ourselves as you see us, without judgment, without condemnation, but with someone who loves us, understands us, and cherishes us. And we ask this through your intercession, Mary. Mary, take each one of us by the hand. And help us to see ourselves as God sees us. To accept ourselves as God accepts us. And to love ourselves as God loves us. As we pray together, how Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for our sinners now, and the hour of our death. Amen. And we just invoke our guardian angels that all the seed God wants to sow here over this week might fall on good soil in our hearts. O angel of God, my guardian dear, to whom God's love commits us here, ever this day be at our side, to light, to guard, to rule and guide. And finally, for those of us who've made confirmation, we would have chosen a saint's name on that day of our confirmation. And those saints are praying and interceding for us if we ask for their intercession. So let us just call upon those saints now so that all the graces God wants us to receive may be received. I was confirmed when I was 27 and the saint I chose was Saint Thomas More and he's helped me immensely in my life. All you holy angels and saints, pray for us. And I just ask St. Therese of Lisieux to bring down the fire of the Holy Spirit from heaven so that we might be set ablaze with that same spirit. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Amen. <clears throat> I've never actually said this story publicly, but I'm going to say it to you for some reason. I feel the Holy Spirit wants me to. I'm going to New Zealand next week. And the last time I was in New Zealand was about 2014. And I went to see a nun who I had been in contact with through emails. And she's an enclosed nun, a Carmelite nun, in um, the uh, convent in Christchurch. 
and her name's Sister Dorothea. And when I went in to see her, it was the first time I had ever actually set eyes on this nun. And she said to me, how comes now you travel all over the world, John? And I said, well, since World Youth Day, sister, I've had all these invitations, so I take them up and I feel God wants me to travel. And then she said, what was it that led you to do that? And I said, someone prayed over me and got a prophecy and they saw me lighting fires all over the world. And the words they got were, you will set my world ablaze with the Holy Spirit. And Sister Dorothea got very um, emotional. And I, after a few moments, said, are you okay, Sister? And she said, no, I'm not really. She said, 25 years ago, I joined the convent. And when I joined the convent, we had two weeks of silence. And it was like Jesus walking around with me. And I felt Jesus say, I want you to pray for an evangelist who's thus set my world ablaze with the Holy Spirit. And she said, I now know that evangelist is you. And it worked out that Sister Dorothea had been praying for me seven years before I was even converted. And she said, when I was to meet you, I was to tell you every time you do a talk, you're to ask St. Therese of Leisure to bring down the fire of the Holy Spirit from heaven so that we might be set ablaze with that same spirit. And I felt the Holy Spirit as she was speaking and I knew this was of God. And when I left there, I went back to a church in Ireland called Carrigaline in Cork. I was just speaking to her. Um, she's been to Cork. Sorry, I don't know your name. <laughs> and, um, yeah, and when I went in Carrigaline to do this talk in this church, there behind the ambo was the biggest statue of St. Therese of Azure you've ever seen. And I really thought that was to reinforce that grace of God. So in case you're wondering why I always, since 2014, have been calling upon St. Therese of Leisure to bring down the fire of the Holy Spirit from heaven so that we might be set ablaze by the Holy Spirit, you're one of the few people who will ever know. Um, in the time of the Spanish Civil War, there was... Um, a priest who was told that the, the soldiers were coming to kill him. So Father Pedro immediately left the church and went back to the family home. When he got to the family home, the only two people who were in was his mum and his younger brother. His younger brother, Juan, had brought great shame to the family. He had been kicked out of university for drinking and gambling and womanising and so he didn't actually speak to his brother Juan. But when he told his mum what had happened, his mum immediately told him to get out of the priest's clothes and she hid him in a cellar. And he said that from his hiding place, he heard the jeeps of the soldiers pull up. And at one point, one of the soldiers was standing on the trap door under which he was hiding. And then he heard some screaming and some shots run out and then there was more screaming, and then the jeeps pulled away. And when he came out of his hiding place, there lying on the front lawn in his priest clothes was his brother Juan. And when he went into the study where he had taken off his priest clothes, there was a note. 
And the note read, I have completely wasted my life, brother, and I gladly give my life to you. And I ask you to use your life to bring as many souls to Jesus as possible. One was beatified by Pope John XXIII, and his brother, Father Pedro, had the honour of co-celebrating that Mass. In my own life, I had no concept of what it was to be a saint. I was baptised a Catholic, but I was never brought up as a Catholic. I never went to Catholic Church. I never went to Mass. I never went to Catholic school. At the age of 10, I came home, and it was a normal night. I think I'd been to Sea Scouts. And my parents told me that I had to choose who I wanted to live with because they were getting divorced. And the two people I loved and trusted had crushed me inside. So I think I made an unconscious decision that I wouldn't love anymore because I really thought if you don't love, then you don't get crushed. My mum ended up having a nervous breakdown and went to psychiatric hospital and my dad remarried. And my stepmom thought the best way of bringing up a kid was by beating them each day. So that was my upbringing. At the age of 13, I started stealing because I wanted someone to take notice of the pain that I was in. I expect I wanted someone to tell me that they loved me. But because my dad was a policeman, it just added to the beatings. At 15, I was put in youth prison and I thought it was better in there than being at home. So I left home at 15. And my only qualification was stealing, so that's what I did. At 19, I was in prison again, and there was another change in me. See, the way I dealt with all the abuse I suffered as a kid is I just turned that abuse into anger. So I was always fighting. So I was put on 23-hour solitary confinement. And it was a bit like looking at a mirror. And because I hated what I saw in that mirror, because I hated myself... I seriously thought about taking God's greatest gift, my own life. But God must have been there because I didn't take my own life. But I came out of there more angry and more bitter than ever. And I thought, what you want out of this world, you take. Because no one gives you anything. And I started bouncing around the East End and West End clubs of London. And I met some guys who seemed to have everything. They had the best girls, the best cars. They walked into a club and everyone stopped because they had disrespect, all for the wrong reasons. Well, I wanted that respect and I wanted that power. So I started working for these people. But before very long, I wasn't working for them. I was working with them. And these were the people who ran most of the organised crime in London. So to my shame, I was involved in major drug deals, protection rackets, Vicious crime of all sorts. There was a time where I would seldom leave my house without carrying a gun. Now I would never leave my house without carrying a rosary. And I think this is far more powerful than any gun I ever come across. Like I was in the Bronx in New York, which is one of the roughest places in the world. And there's a lot of gangs there. And one of the gangs is called the Bloods. And the Bloods take members as young as 15, girls as well as boys. And if you want to join the Bloods, you can pass the initiation. But they only take members on one day a year, Halloween. 
And if you want to join the Bloods, you have to ride a subway train and there's two gang members watching you and you have to walk up to this complete stranger and it doesn't matter if it's an old man, old lady, young boy or young girl, but they have to be wearing red. That's why they're called the Bloods. And you have to walk up to this complete stranger and slash him across the face with a Stanley knife. And if the two gang members see you do that, you've passed the initiation and you can join the gang. Now, you can leave this gang any time you like, but you have to ask permission. And the first thing the gang members do is they take all their change out their pocket and they throw it on the floor. And you have to pick up all this change and walk out the door. And if you can do that, you can leave the gang. But while you're doing that, they're hitting you with iron bars and baseball bats. And if you're still alive when you get outside the door, they think you're hard enough that if the police arrest you, you're not going to grass them up to the police so you can leave the gang. Now, you might think, well, that's ridiculous. Who'd ever join a gang like that? They're queuing up because they want to belong to something. How many of us care more about what the people around us think about us than we think about ourselves? How many of us are ruled by peer pressure? Do you know, I had someone who was in community with me and she was so petrified of what people was thinking of her. Even though she had been living in the community for 11 years, she still couldn't make a move in case people were looking at her badly. Peer pressure runs a massive part of our life. And with the guys I was with, these were gangsters. So the more vicious you was, the more money you made, and the more power you got. And I was good at it. I got everything the world says makes you happy. I had the penthouse apartment, the sports cars, the 7 Series BMW, the Sport Merc convertible. I was earning so much money I couldn't spend it. But inside there was this overwhelming sense of emptiness because no matter what I seemed to achieve, nothing satisfied me, nothing fulfilled me. I remember our late Holy Father, St. John Paul II, said, the person who gives us the desire to search for him in our hearts is Jesus. And no matter how rich or famous we become, we will never be truly satisfied or fulfilled until we have that personal relationship with Jesus. Well, because I didn't have that personal relationship, I looked for what the world offered. I was on crack cocaine, smoking dope like it was going out of fashion, drinking really heavy. I was also very promiscuous. Sometimes I'd wake up with girls and I wouldn't even know their name. But the more promiscuous I became and the more drugs I took, the more my soul seemed to die inside. Till eventually one girl I lived with for six months, she knew no more about me the day she moved out than the day she moved in. Because even though I was looked upon as being a hard man, inside I was a scared man. Scared of being rejected for who I really was. So I wouldn't share my feelings with anyone in case they rejected me like I felt my parents had rejected me. I was working a club that we part-owned in the West End of London and ended up hitting this guy. And the only reason I hit this man was to impress this underworld boss who was there. And as I looked at this man lying on the floor, I truly believed I had killed him. And do you know what scared me the most? Is I didn't care. And as I drove home that night, I thought, what have I become that I could kill someone and not even care. 
because I used to care. I used to want to help people when I was a kid. I used to want to make this world a better place. But here I was just hurting everyone around me. I came in this normal night and I became aware of a voice speaking to me. And I knew that voice was God. And I knew I was dying there and then. And I knew I was going to hell. And you know, I hear a lot of people now say to me, when I meet God, I'm going to give him a piece of my mind. Well, if this was anything to go by, when we meet God, there's no two-way conversation. I knew I was dying there and then, and I knew I was going to hell. And I cried out for another chance, not because I was sorry, but I didn't want to go to hell. And I said the first prayer I'd ever said. I said, up to now, all I've done is take from you, God. Now I want to give. And as I said that prayer, that emptiness which had always filled my heart was suddenly filled with the Holy Spirit, the love of God for me. Do you know, up to that moment in my life, I truly believe I was worthless. Didn't matter whether I lived or died. I remember just a few weeks before this, saying to a gangster friend of mine, there's only two ways we'd end up. One's dead or the other's life imprisonment. And it doesn't matter. But in this moment, I knew it did matter. Because not only did God love me, but he had a plan for me. The only person I knew had a faith was my mum. And I didn't see a lot of her in them days. I might give her an expensive present when I felt guilty. But this night I went round and told her what had happened to me. She said to me she had prayed for me every single day of my life. And nine days before this, she had prayed a novena to the patron saint of hopeless cases, St. Jude. And it was on the ninth day of my mum's novena that I truly believe I heard the voice of God speak to me in my heart. I'll never forget the tears rolling down my mum's face as I told her how I had found God, probably washing away all the pain and hurt that I caused her. My stepdad, who died the other year, he gave me my first Bible. I just opened it up randomly, and the first page it fell on was the story of the prodigal son. And I knew it was me. I knew everything I had taken from God I had just wasted. And I also realised in the same way that he was starving, I was starving. Now, I wasn't starving for food, and my money hadn't run out. But you know whatever mask we wear in life, to get the people around us to accept us and like us. When we're on our own, there's no one to impress, is there? We haven't got to pretend we can be real. Well, that's who I was starving to be loved for, because I'd spent my whole life trying to impress everyone else. But I never once thought, who am I in the eyes of God? What did God create me for? Do you know um, our Holy Father took the name Francis after St. Francis? When St. Francis first found God, for three years he said the same prayer. Who are you, Lord, and who am I? Who are you and who am I? He must have been wearing a lot of masks. There's a guy I've been watching a bit and reading about on YouTube. His name is uh, John Wimber. Me and John Wimber had two things in common. One was he was an evangelist who travelled all over the world. Another, he was known as a fat man on his way to heaven. Well, John Wimber had read about St. Francis of Assisi, and he was very impressed with his saint. So one day he uh, turned to his wife and he said, I'm going to go off into the mountains 
and I'm there praying, I'm there fast, and I'm there seek God like St. Francis, and I'm not there see you for several weeks. His wife looked at him very puzzled, and she said, you're there fast for several weeks? Anyway, off he sets. The same day, she gets a phone call at two o'clock. He said, pick me up, I'm in McDonald's. <laughs> she said, what happened to this seven weeks of fasting and prayer? He said, well, dear, I learned a very important lesson. My name is John Wimber, not St. Francis of Assisi. <laughs> I think the only person we have to be to truly glorify Christ is the person he created us to be. And if we become that person, not only do we glorify Christ, but I think we change the world we live in. There's a true story of a man who takes his son to school every day. And every day he takes him to school, he says, I'll be here waiting for you when you come out. And every day this little boy looks through the classroom window and sees his dad waiting by the gates, goes running up and gets a big hug off him. And he says, I'm always there, I'll be here for you. I'm never there, I'll leave you. Well, on this one day, there was a massive earthquake. I'm sure we all read about it on the TV, sorry, in the newspapers or watched it on the TV. And by the time this father gets to the school, the school's a massive rubble. And they're buried underneath the rubble are all the kids. So this father starts pulling off the stones one by one. And some of the villagers help him. But most of them say they're all dead. You're wasting your time. Well, after 24 hours of this, this father's hands cut to bits by the stones. Everyone gives up. But he carries on searching, fighting back the tears and calling out his son's name. After 36 hours, he hears a whimpering sound and he calls out Amit and he hears the words, Papa, Papa. And as he removes these last few stones, all the children are still alive. And his son was heard to say, I told you my father would be here for me. I told you my father would never stop searching for me. Well, how much that father loved his son, I realised God the father loved me a million times more. And he had never stopped searching for me, even under the rubble of my sinfulness. So I expect I started searching and I started wondering where the true faith was. And I met a priest who told me about a retreat that was happening. Well, I'll be honest with you, I thought a retreat was lying on the beach. Bacardi Breezer, joint, nice girl, just chilling for a couple of weeks. And I thought I could do the holidays, so I'd go on this retreat. Well, when I got there, it wasn't quite like I imagined. For those of you, if this is your first retreat, you've probably worked that out now. And there was about 250 young people, and some of these young people were coming up and hugging me. Well, I don't know if you know ex-gangsters, but we're not into this hugging business, yeah? <laughs> like the girls, it was fine, but the guys, please. You don't hug other men down there while you get a slap. So that was the first thing that I had to get over. But then there was a talk. And this talk was, give me your wounded heart. And as I listened to this priest speaking about how every sin we commit is like a wound on our heart, I was looking at a crucifix. And for the first time in my life, I realised why Jesus had died on that cross. Because the darkest, most terrible sins I had ever committed, he gladly carried in his heart to that crucifixion. And I was filled with real sorrow for my sins. But much more than that sorrow was this incredible joy. 
because it was like Jesus saying to me, John, I love you so much, I go through this all again just for you. And I started crying. I cried for the first time since I was 10 when my parents told me that they were getting divorced. Because that part of my heart that I closed to love, through Jesus' sacrifice, he was able to open it and change it. I came out at talk and I said a prayer to Our Lady and I just said, what is it that your son wants me to do? And I felt a whisper, go to confession. I'd never been to confession in my life and I was 27 years old and I think I had broken every commandment there was. And do you know what I was most scared of? What the priest would think of me. But I went to confession and I was completely honest and I left nothing out. And you know, at the end of this confession, this priest puts his hand on my head, but it wasn't his hand, it was Jesus' hand. I could actually feel the blood of Jesus running down the side of my face. And as I walked away from that confession, it was like I was alive again. I could feel the wind on my face, I could hear the birds singing, because that sin had killed me, but that confession had brought me back to life. Do you know, just last week I was having a film made of my life and I played me and I had all different actors playing the different people, you know. And do you know, at one scene I had to do some of the things that I did then and some of them were horrific. And do you know, this guy who's doing the film, he's done to do a scene of animation whereas I'm going to confession, those scenes are projected onto Jesus on the cross, taking that filth and that evil onto himself. And you know, when I was doing those scenes, all I was thinking about is how Jesus died in that agony to set me free. And the guy who was doing the film, Steve, he said to me, he said, John, you seem quite emotional. And I said, yeah, I am. And he said, is it bringing back bad memories? And I said, no, it's bringing back wonderful memories. I think when we're set free, that's when we truly know what it is to know Jesus. Because when we know his mercy, we really know him personally. So if there's anyone here who's sitting there with unconfessed sins, don't think you know Jesus. Because you don't really know Jesus. Because if you want to really know him, then give him everything. Anything you're ashamed of. Even the most sordid, terrible thing you've done. That's the best present you could give him. Because then he can give you the freedom that he paid for by dying on that cross. And if there's anyone here who's a bit scared of what the priest might think of you, if you're really honest... Do you know what that priest was doing when I looked into his eyes? He was crying. He wasn't judging me. He was Jesus to me. If there's one thing that I would say you should do at this retreat, is don't leave with unconfessed sins. Make sure you get rid of everything. If you want to know what God wants, he wants everything. And it begins with our sins. 
And in that grace of that confession, he'd transform us. He'd open our eyes. He'd let us see the wonder of his love for us. But while they still unconfessed sins, you'll never really know how much you're worth and how beautiful you are in his eyes. I came away from that confession and there was a mass and I'd never been brought up as a Catholic. But I just said a simple prayer and I said, if this is true to you, Jesus, then show me. As I received Jesus on that day, the only way I can describe it to you is every good feeling I ever felt in my life, including how I felt when I walked out of that flat and felt God's love for me, including how I felt when I walked away from that confession and felt God's mercy for me, was magnified and magnified. And I knew that that was Jesus, body, blood, soul and divinity. Not because anyone had taught me out of a book, but I had asked Jesus and he had personally shown me you know, just the other year, I had the honour of doing a conference with Jean Vanier in Paris. He had read my book and invited me over to do some talks. And, you know, he told a story of this young man who was 16 who came into his community, the last community that he run in Paris. His name was Eric. Eric had been in institutions since the age of five. He was deaf, dumb and blind, completely cocooned in this darkness. And he said when Eric came into their community, he had never met anyone who was so in constant fear as Eric. He was constantly in terror. And no matter what they tried, nothing seemed to reach into his darkness. One of the little boys in the community, he was about 11, called Philip. He was a Down syndrome boy. He said, why don't we place Eric in the presence of Jesus? Every day they used to have adoration. So after that, Jean Vanier said they used to carry Eric in his wheelchair up to the chapel and they used to sit him in front of Jesus for about three or four hours a day. And he said he watched over the days and over the weeks and over the months as this boy was completely transformed. He said, our humble God, who comes in the form of bread, was able to reach into Eric's heart and completely transform his heart. He has no fear of anything now. Completely set free by our God, who comes to us in the simple form of bread. Every time we receive him, there's nothing more he can give us. I left that retreat and I started working with this little nun, a world-famous little nun, St. Mother Teresa of Calcutta. I suspect she had a real effect on me. One of the things she really showed me was what it was to give, but not just give, but give until it hurts. And you know, the other thing where she really affected me she had no fear. I was meant to have worked with some of the hardest men in London. They were all paranoid of their own shadow. And here was this little tiny nun who had no fear. And when I reflected of why she had no fear, do you know what I think it was? Pure love drives out all fear. 
pure love drives out all fear. And she was so filled with God's love that there was no more room for fear in her life. And the more I've opened my heart to that love, the less fear there's been in my life. Do you know, sometimes it gets quite tiring with what I do because I do schools during the day and I do parish missions in the evening. Not so long ago, I was in Derry in a place called Claudie and then I was in Longtower Church. The reason why I say this is literally three days ago, I was in Claudie and I did a talk with the bishop there, the Bishop of Derry. And one of the ladies reminded me of this school I spoke in there. Anyway, I'd been uh, doing three weeks of parish missions and I was quite tired and despondent. And I said to God, does what I do really make a difference? I didn't get an answer straight away. But later on that night, a lady asked to see me in the sacristy. And she says, was you in schools today in Claudie? I said, I was. She said, two weeks ago, my 15-year-old little girl tried to kill herself. She said she went back to school today and she wore a jumper to hide all the stitches in her wrists. She said you came into that school and you told your story. And somewhere in your story you told her she was beautiful and loved and cherished by God. She said my little girl came home tonight and she told me word for word what you had said. It took her 45 minutes. And she said, Mum, I want to go back to Mass with you. I want to pray the rosary with you. I want to live again. She said, you don't know what you're doing in those schools, but never stop. She was very emotional. I went back in the church and I was emotional. And I asked Jesus to forgive me for my lack of faith in him. I'm not telling you that story that you might think I'm good. I'm just a stone who God speaks through. But I'm telling you that story that you might pray for me because your prayers are supernatural. And if you pray for me, maybe you'll never know how much grace you're bringing. But when you get to heaven, there'll be thousands upon thousands of souls who say, I'm here because of your prayers. So please pray for me and pray for my ministry. I spent when I came back from working with Mother Teresa, I decided that I wanted to give again because I was sick of taking. So I started working with the homeless. And I had this lie in my head that anyone who was homeless was either a druggie or a drunk. I remember one of the first guys I saw on the streets, I said to him, you should stop taking drugs. He said, I don't take drugs. I said, well, then you should stop drinking alcohol and abusing it. He said, I don't drink alcohol. Now, at the time I used to smoke, this is the hypocrite I was. I said, last row of the dice, well, you should stop smoking. He said, I don't smoke. He said, do you know what you should do? I said, no. He said, you should stop judging people. He taught me far more than I taught him. Another time we was giving out some sandwiches and I had some cheese sandwiches, chicken sandwiches and ham sandwiches. And I said to this guy, do you want a cheese sandwich? He said, I don't like cheese. I thought the cheek, he's meant to be starving. He doesn't like cheese. Well, he must have known what I was thinking because he said, just because you're homeless and hungry, it doesn't make you like cheese. <laughs> I thought, good point. So after that, I'd say, would you like ham, chicken or cheese? <laughs> Another person we used to visit were people who were housebound. One lady was called Winifred. She was a Quaker. And each time I'd go around to see her, 
I'd take her out in a wheelchair because she never got out. And when I'd bring her back in, before I'd leave, she'd ask me to say a prayer with her. And I'd say a prayer. And then there was like a silence, almost like she was waiting on the Holy Spirit. And one time, Winifred prayed. And to my dying day, I'll never forget what it was like praying with Jesus Christ. I visited her in hospital the night she died. And I gave her a rosary. And she said, I know what this is. This is Our Lady's hand. And she'd take me to Jesus, her son. Do you know she died exactly an hour after I gave her that rosary? Pray for us sinners now and at the very hour of our death. Another person who we used to help were kids who were dying. I know we have some Scottish priests here from the Across group. And we used to take them on Across jumblances to France. One little boy was called Stephen and he had cancer of the spinal cord. But you even looked at this little kid and he'd give a smile that would melt your heart. And when you used to take him in your arms, before he'd have one of these terrible spasms, he'd pucker his lips so that he could kiss me on the side of the face. He taught me more about love than I could ever teach him. But you know, the person I think I was really helping when I was helping those homeless guys was a part of my own wounded heart because I know what it's like to have no home like they had no home. And when I was visiting Winifred, I was visiting another part of my wounded heart because I know what it's like to be in prison like Winifred was in prison. And when I was holding Stephen in my arms, I think I was holding a part of my heart in my arms because I know what it's like to be 10 and have no one love you. I think it's through giving that we truly receive and know the power of Jesus. And that power is always through giving. So if you want to be healed, if you want to be free, if you want to know Jesus personally, closer than ever before, then give. Give until it hurts. Never stop giving and keep on giving. Because Jesus can never refuse us when we truly give him everything. You know, I was asked once in the presence of this uh, very holy guy, he runs Craig Lodge, his name's Callum, and he said to me, what's the most important thing in life, John? And I said, Callum, you're a lot older and wiser than me. What is it? He said to bring as many souls to God as possible on your own soul first. I thought that's definitely worth living for and that's definitely worth dying for. Sometimes when we're all smashed to bits in life and we feel that we can't achieve anything or do anything, we only have to look back at how many times God's used us to touch other lives to realise how powerful he is. And it's in our nothingness, our brokenness, that God is always so amazing. When I was praying for this talk, I was now finished with this story. There was a girl who was in community with us. Her name was Lily. Lily was someone who had been really badly sexually abused from the age of seven till she was nine by a friend of the family. 
And this person who had taken away her very innocence, the hatred she had for him met her up inside. So she turned to drink, she turned to drugs. She even tried to take her own life. Many years later, she had this incredible conversion to the personal love of Jesus for her. But she knew the way she was living her life and also this hatred she had inside her, she needed to go to confession. And she went to confession. And she was crying so much when she told this priest about what had happened in her childhood that the priest took her head and brought it to his heart. And she knew it was Jesus bringing her to his heart. And she left and she ended up joining us in community. But I knew there was still a sadness in Lily. So I asked her to pray to Our Lady where that sadness come from. A few months later she came to me and she said, I think I know. When I was 15 I went round to this church hall with a number of boys from my school and I let them do whatever they liked to me. Three days later it was my 16th birthday and I tried to take my life. I said, well, I want you to place yourself back in that situation and I'm there pray for Jesus to come into that situation. And as I was praying, Lily threw herself on the floor, crying and crying and crying. Couldn't stop crying. And after about 20 minutes, I said, what happened? She said, Jesus appeared and he wrapped me in this white cloak. And he kept on saying, my innocent seven-year-old little girl, my innocent seven-year-old little girl, my innocent seven-year-old little girl. He couldn't see anything Lily was doing when she was 15. All he could see was his little girl who has been so hurt when she was seven. And I thought, if only we could see ourselves as God sees us. If only we could accept ourselves as God accepts us. And if only we could love ourselves as God loves us, then we'd truly know the power of God. So thanks very much for listening. I'll be praying for you. Please pray for me. Just one thing before I finish. I wrote my first book. I've wrote four books, but I'm just going to plug my first book. I haven't got any with me, by the way, because um, Aer Lingus are as bad as Ryanair on carrying things. But uh, this book, um, I wouldn't be promoting it if it hadn't changed many people's lives. And I know we buy a lot of presents in our life, and we buy mostly meaningless presents. But if you buy someone this book, and I suggest you read it first yourself, it could really change someone's life. I was in a prison last year, and I gave this book to a prisoner who had been in there. By the way, I like going into prison now, because when I want to leave, they let me out. Well, there was a time they never used to let me out. But I gave this to a prisoner who had been in there for 25 years. Three days after reading my book, he fell at the priest's feet and he asked to become a Catholic. And last Pentecost, he was brought into the Catholic Church. It's very real and it's very honest. And like I say, I wouldn't be promoting it if I didn't know it was changing people's lives. So I'm going to give you a card on your way out. And if you want to get any of my books from my website... You can get them on that, from that card. All the money from these books either go to our work or charity. No individual makes any money out of the books. Do we want a final story? Okay. My final story, there's two 16-year-old boys 
And they both make a promise that they'll be pilots when they grow up because they love flying and aviation. One of them dies in the terrible plane crash and the other one's devastated because not only has he lost his best friends, but he's lost him to the very thing he loves, flying. So he locks himself in his bedroom for three days. On the third day, his mum's worried about him and banging on the door. And he opens the door and he hands her the Bible. And he says, Mum, I'm no longer afraid. I'm going to do what God wants me to do in my life. I'm going to be a pilot. And off he goes to school. Well, his mum's amazed because he never reads the Bible. And every time it says in here, do not be afraid, he had highlighted it in pen. It says in here 366 times, do not be afraid. One for every day of the year, including leap year. And that kid grew up to be Neil Armstrong, the first man to walk on the moon. He wasn't afraid to do God's will in his life. In the same way, you should know that God wants everything. But in return, he gives us everything. And in the words of St. Mother Teresa, then we become something beautiful for God.